Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. Hey, we are jumping into a season called Advent. And one of the things that I love about the, the early church fathers, the very first Christians, is they said, hey, there's, there's two things that happened in the life of Jesus that are so important for every Christian throughout all history and all time. They're so massively important that we actually wanna build in space. We wanna build in time leading up to these moments for Christians around the world to, to focus, to remember, to create space and time in their own lives so that they don't miss the moment. They don't miss the truth behind these things that happened in the life of Jesus. And those two moments are centered around Christmas and Easter. The birth of Jesus Christ, what we celebrate on Christmas, the fact that God became a man. He came down and lived among us, lived a perfect life that we could not live, and then died the death that we could not die so that he could bring us back to God and give us new life. And so we celebrate the birth, the incarnation is what it's called of Jesus Christ on Christmas, and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter. The two, most important, the two most important realities in the personhood of Jesus Christ, the two biggest holidays in the Christian faith, and in fact, they're so big, as I mentioned, the early church father said, we're, we're going to create a, a period of time, a little over a month, 40 days leading up to Christmas and 40 days leading up to Easter, where we want to encourage Jesus followers all around the world to just hit pause and consider, to look again, to remember, to remember what Jesus did, to remember what God did for us, not to breeze on past it, not to get caught up in the hustle and the bustle of uh, staff parties and holiday parties and year-end sporting events and all the different things that come at us in the month of December, but to make space for what matters most. You see, what struck me this week, and I, I was thinking about something that the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 to 15. He wrote this. He said this. He said, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these things. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Yeah, he says, I know you know this stuff already. I know you've heard the Christmas message and the Easter message. I know you've heard the gospel before, but I'm going to tell you about it again. And he goes on, I think it's right. As long as I'm in the body to stir you up by way of reminder. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you will be able at any time to recall, to remember these things, to remember these things. Friends, here's what I know. Christianity is not about believing something one time, having faith one time, remembering what Jesus did for you once upon a time. It's about living daily independence in in, not independence, but in dependence as dependent creatures upon God. 
It's about living daily in the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about looking again and remembering again at what God has done for us over and over and over again because we, as humans, have an incredible capacity to forget things. Come on, somebody. My ability to forget where I place my keys and my wallet and my cell phone is legendary. It's supernatural. In the split second, I can lose all of my most important possessions, usually like within five minutes of arriving at my house or five minutes before I need to leave and be somewhere. And it's true. There, there's something powerful about looking at something again, about staring at something a little bit longer, considering the truth of the gospel a little bit longer. And every year that I come around to Christmas and Easter, and, I, and to these seasons leading up to Christmas and Easter, it's kind of like, all right, Lord, what, what am I going to say this year? It's kind of like the same big idea, Lord, you know, every year. I got to come back around it. And so I, I, every year I read the gospel narratives of the birth of Jesus, and I read the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, and every single time I see something new. I see something that was right in front of my face that even though I've read it a hundred times before, I didn't see it the last time I read it. And it reminds me of a condition that I have. And in fact, I think it's a condition shared by most men in this room, if we're being honest. It's a condition called uh, sudden onset temporary male blindness. Check it out on WebMD, WebMD. It's a real thing. Here's how it works. The moment my wife asks me to get something for her out of the pantry or the refrigerator, doesn't matter what it is. Let's say ketchup, for example, okay? The moment she says the word ketchup, sudden onset temporary male blindness sets in and I can open the refrigerator and it can be right in front of my eyes and I won't see it. It's as though it doesn't exist. In fact, I could grab the ketchup and move it and look behind the ketchup while I'm looking for the ketchup and still not see it. Anybody else with me? Is this just me? And I'll tell my wife, sweetheart, I'm sorry, we are, we're out of ketchup. It's not here. And then she'll come over and stand next to me and she'll look at me and she'll look in the fridge and she'll go, really? Like, are you being serious right now? I'm like, yeah, I've looked everywhere, sweetheart. We don't have any ketchup. It's not here. And then she reaches out and grabs the ketchup, and it's like the moment her hand touches the ketchup bottle, it appears out of nowhere. Wasn't there just a second ago. And friends, that's not just true for ketchup or anything else in the pantry or the refrigerator. That is true for all of life, and especially the spiritual life especially our Christian lives. There are things that God wants to say to us. There are things he wants to speak to us that are right in front of us. And maybe you've heard it a thousand times. Maybe you've looked at it a thousand times, but you haven't seen it fully. You haven't seen it in a way that's going to capture your heart and transform your life. And my prayer for you this Advent season as we head towards Christmas Eve and the celebration of Christ's birth is that you would make space in your life, you would make room in your life to consider what God has done for you. You'd create space, you'd make time to look again, 
to linger a little bit longer. Create space for your family. Maybe it's in the morning, maybe it's in the evening. To pause, to pray together, to read the story of Christ's birth and to look at it again. Today we're gonna be looking at a passage that's familiar. If you've been around church, it's probably familiar to you. If you've been to a Christmas service, maybe you've heard this passage read before. But we're gonna look at it again. And we're going to see what the Lord has to say to us in this passage today. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke 2. It'll be on the side screens as well. Luke 2, verse 1. Here's what God's word says. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his hometown, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. That's important. He went there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Now, my title for today's message, I've already mentioned it, but the thing that I want to touch on from this passage and really focus on as the big idea is simply this, making space. How do we recognize? What does it mean to recognize God's work in our lives? How do we know what God is up to in our lives? How do we recognize when Jesus is at work in our lives, especially in ways that we're not expecting him to be at work in our lives, especially in ways that we really don't want him to be at work in our lives, and maybe even in ways that he's been working in our lives in a long time and yet we've never seen it before? Because in so many ways, that's what the Christmas story is about. It's about God's unexpected work. It's about what he did in and through his son Jesus that nobody was looking for and most people missed it. They didn't recognize it. And so there's, there's three ways that we can make space this Advent season. There's three ways that I wanna encourage us to make room for Jesus in our own lives. Number one is we have to learn how to recognize what he's up to. We have to stay alert and keep our, the eyes of our heart open and awake to what he's doing in our lives. Number two, we got to rearrange some things. If we want to make space for Jesus during this Advent season, we have to take a fresh look at our priorities and our time and how we're spending our energy. And then number three, if we want to make space for Jesus, we have to recognize the fact that he is standing at the door of our hearts, of our lives, knocking. And he's just saying, you just have to receive me. You have to open the door and let me in. So we have to recognize, rearrange, and receive. You know, when I was reading Luke 2, and as I was considering this passage of Scripture, I was reminded because this is such a fun season. We start to get Christmas cards from all of our friends and family. And what's great now is that you get the Christmas card in the mail from friends or family members, whatever it may be. But if you're on social media, the very same friends will post some other photos from that same photo shoot. And what's great, especially if the kids are little, 
there's typically one or two photos that they show where at least one of the kids is losing his or her mind. Come on, somebody. You know what that's like, right? I, I found this one on the internet the other day. I thought this captured it well. There's just so much joy in this photo right here. There's not enough gummy bears on the other side of that camera. I remember when we were younger as a family and we lived in Atlanta, this was a classic moment for us. Oh, Lily Hope, perfect smile, Sawyer. Just a rough day. Maybe it was cold, I don't know. Rough day for Sawyer. But now as our kids have gotten older, the trouble is not so much getting them to smile and look in the same direction. Now the struggle is the fact that we have a dog. And the dog has to be included in the photos, right? It's part of the family. Now, to get a dog to look in the right direction, that's a whole different thing, right? And, and what's funny is I was standing there like, Tucker, look over there. Look over, you know, I'm like snapping my finger and pointing, and what is the dog doing? He's looking at my finger. He's wondering, is he gonna drop some food? Is there a reason? Or he's looking at my face. He's looking everywhere where he's except where he is supposed to look until my daughter said, all right, I'm dealing with this right now. And she just grabbed his chin and said, Tucker, look there. <laughs> I think this is a, it's a parable. It's a picture of how, uh, of how we face the Christmas story, right? We have these nativity scenes and we have these sets and we, re, we remember, oh, this picture in our mind of Mary and Joseph arriving in Bethlehem. She's in labor. She's looking for a place to give birth to the baby Jesus and she's going from end to end to end, knocking, trying to find a spot and she can't find anything or anywhere to give birth to Jesus and it just so turns out we're looking at the wrong things. God is saying, Look, there's something massively important I want to show you here. There's some big things that I want you to see. Don't get caught up in the wrong things. Make sure you're looking the right direction this Advent season, this season of Christmas. The very first thing that you have to do is you have to learn how to recognize the bigger picture, the bigger story that God is writing in your life, in my life, and in the history of the world. You see, Luke 2, it opens with this incredible verse, it says this, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, and all went to be registered, each to his hometown. Now, this is remarkable because Caesar Augustus issued a decree, and Caesar was the Roman emperor the most powerful king, the most powerful ruler in the known world. And the reason Luke said in this passage that all the world should be registered is because essentially the entire known world at that time was ruled by Rome. It was ruled by Caesar Augustus. He was so powerful that he actually started a, a tradition among the Caesars that he should be called Lord, that he should be considered divinity, that he should be considered as an offspring of the gods. That's how powerful he was. That's how powerful he wanted everyone to consider him to be. And so Luke is setting up an amazing contrast here. He's, he's opening this passage about the birth of the king of the world, Jesus, by mentioning the king of Rome, the Roman emperor. 
And how amazing is this, right? He says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So everyone had to go home to their hometown to pay taxes, to be registered within the Roman Empire. And right there, Luke is setting the table, he's setting the scene, he's saying what's fascinating about this, because as you continue to read on, what you learn is the fact that even though emperors make decrees and kings make laws and they make decisions, God is the one orchestrating all of human history. You see, long before Caesar Augustus made that decree and decided to get a head count of the Roman Empire to make sure everyone was paying taxes. 700 years before that, God made a decree through the prophet Micah. And in Micah 5 verse 2, here's what God said. Here's the decree that God gave. He said, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Friends, decrees go forth from kings, but God is orchestrating history. Luke was very intentional when he wrote, this decree sent Joseph and Mary back to Bethlehem in order to fulfill what was prophesied and decreed by God 700 years ago, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Friends, we have to be able to recognize that even in this moment, a moment like this, which would have been very inconvenient, bad timing for Mary and Joseph, as Mary was full term about to give birth, for her to travel 90 miles to Joseph's hometown, we have to be able to recognize that perhaps God is up to something bigger. Even in the pain, the discomfort, and the inconvenience of our own lives, often God is writing a, a bigger and a better story. And sometimes all we see and all we notice is the pain, the discomfort, and the inconvenience of the circumstances. We get mad at, you know, Caesar Augustus for making the decree, whatever it may be, and we fail to recognize God's in control of this whole story. I don't have to be anxious or stressed. I can trust in him along the way. I have to recognize he's behind the scenes writing history. The story, it goes on. I want to reread re verse four and five for us. Here's what it says. Joseph, therefore, went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Then, if we look at verse six and seven here, this is so important because there's some things in here that I had never seen before. It says this, while they were there, the time came for her, for Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We're going to get to that word in in just a minute because the literal Greek translation is actually guest room, and that changes the game for this story. You see, every time I had ever read the Christmas story, I had this picture in my mind similar to what I shared with you a few minutes ago 
of Mary and Joseph after traveling 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Travel 90 miles, she is full term, she is uncomfortable. This is not a fun journey. Showing up in the dark of night, going from you know the Motel 6 to the Holiday Inn Express to the Marriott to whatever it was, knocking on the door, you know, going to the front desk, going to the door, whatever it may be, and them saying, I'm sorry, everyone's back in town for the census. We have no vacancies. There's no room. Felt very impersonal. You know, if I showed up to a hotel and the front desk manager told me, I'm sorry, we're full. We have no vacancies. I wouldn't take that as a personal offense. I'd say, okay, I'll try the next one. But here's something I, I discovered. I was reading a commentary by N.T. Wright this week, and he's a New Testament scholar. He studied the ancient world, and he said, you know, what most of us miss is this. The Greek word, we don't have a great translation for it in English, so most English Bibles translate this as an inn or a motel or a hotel. But in reality, there were no hotels in the ancient world. That's a modern invention. Okay? So... There was no Holiday Inn, there was no Motel 6. People had guest rooms either in or attached to their homes. The literal Greek word is a guest room. And so Joseph is heading back to his hometown. Bethlehem, they estimate, was roughly 900 people in population. Maybe 1,800 tops. We are not talking a massive city with tons of hotels and they're going trying to find a spot to stay. Joseph is heading back to his hometown and he's knocking on the doors of his family, his friends, and his neighbors and he's saying, can I use your guest room? My wife is about to have, a, I'm sorry, my fiance, that's a key, key point here, is about to have a baby. And what's happening here is not an informal, I'm sorry, no vacancy Try the next one. What's happening here is actually personal rejection. Mary and Joseph are being personally rejected by friends and family. Nobody is willing to open up their homes to them. Why? They lived in a culture of shame and honor. They'd all heard the story. They knew Joseph from the time he had grown up and was a little boy. They had heard how he had met Mary, how they had fallen in love in Nazareth, in Mary's hometown. They'd heard the story, and then suddenly Mary's pregnant, and it's not Joseph's son. And so now Joseph shows up. He has chosen not to, not to move on from her and put her away or divorce her or to break off the engagement. In fact, he brings her with him to his hometown, to all of his friends and family because she and Joseph have already been rejected in her hometown, Nazareth. She's about to have this child and he says, I can't leave her alone there. She's gotta come with me. And that day it would have been perfectly appropriate for the man to go back to his hometown, pay the taxes and then come back home. But he said, I can't leave her alone in this time. She's gotta come with me. So they show up, and I just picture this scene. This changed the whole picture in my mind of the Christmas story for me. I imagine Joseph first going to his parents' house, his hometown, where all of his brothers and sisters would have been with their spouses, maybe their children. They've all heard the story. They all know what's happened. They've heard this crazy rumor that Joseph and Mary are sharing that uh, 
hey, it's not my baby, but it's nobody else's baby. It's God's baby. Trust us on this one. She's, she is with child from God. Right, Joseph? We've heard the story. And in a, in a culture of shame and honor, I imagine they, they show up at mom and dad's door and the first words out of the, the mother or the father's mouth is something like this, Joseph, I can't believe you had the nerve to bring her here in front of all of our family and friends. Joseph, you're a good man. She's betrayed you and the evidence is right there. You need to move on from her. Joseph, you cannot stay here. No, you gotta go, Joseph. And you too, Mary, we don't wanna see you again. I can't believe you had the, the nerve, the audacity to show up here with her. You should have left her in Nazareth. Joseph, move on from her. You're better than this, Joseph. You've got your whole future ahead of you. You don't need to be in this scandalous situation. Slam the door in their face. I mean, think about it. If, if you're the parents and a newly engaged couple shows up at your house, even if your house is full, every room is full, you're like, no problem, we'll make room. So glad y'all are here. We'll clear out, you know, the grandkids. We'll move them. We'll make them sleep on the roof, whatever. We will find a spot for you. We will make room for you. The only reason there was no room in the inn, the guest house, throughout all of Bethlehem is not because it was too crowded. It's because nobody wanted to be associated with the shame of Joseph and Mary and that child. And they were personally rejected by every single person that Joseph would have grown up with. Friends, if we fail to recognize how Jesus is showing up in our lives, then we will reject and resist what he wants to accomplish in us and through us. If we fail to recognize how Jesus is showing up in our lives, then we will reject and resist what he wants to accomplish in us and through us. Joseph's parents missed it. They didn't believe. They, I mean, who would believe? I, I can hardly blame them. The story is unbelievable. But they, they didn't recognize what God was doing. Therefore, they rejected Mary and Joseph. They rejected their own son. They wouldn't let him in. Friends, so often in our lives, Christmas is a reminder that the pain, the suffering, the inconveniences, the interruptions of life that we all face, that we all go through, they're not just accidental occurrences in a broken, fallen world. I'm not saying God actively causes evil or harm to happen to you. What I am saying is this, that when evil and harm and brokenness occurs in your life, God can actually rewrite and redeem any story. And that's the point of Christmas. That's the point of Advent. That's where we come back around it every year and we say, Lord, help me to recognize even in the pain and the discomfort and the rejection of my own life, what you're doing and how you're showing up for me here. What's the bigger story that you're orchestrating and writing in my life through this? Lord, don't let me miss it because this hurts a lot right now and I don't see it yet, but I trust that you're a good father. The second thing that we have to realize is that during Advent, when we're 
we're making space, if we, if when Jesus shows up in our life, whether it's through pain or blessing, through failure or success, we have to rearrange certain things and make room for him. Friends, one of the things that I wanna challenge you with during Advent over the next month as we head towards Christmas is make space for Jesus in your life. Remember the first time when we um, went as a family camping in Yosemite? We moved out here five years ago and I had been to Yosemite before and I thought, man, one of the first things we gotta do as a family is we gotta, we gotta pack up and head to Yosemite. My kids have gotta see this place. It's so beautiful. And one of the things that I, I pride myself on as a man is uh, being able to, to really efficiently pack the back of a car. I mean, you'd be amazed what I can make fit. It's like, a, it's like the grown-up version of Tetris. Come on, somebody. You know, the kids and Lindsay, they, they pile up all the stuff, and with camping, there's a ton of stuff. Tents, sleeping bags, chairs. You know, you gotta bring everything, right? And you look at the pile, and you look at your, the trunk of your, your car, or whatever it may be, and you're like, okay, challenge accepted. I am gonna make this work, right? And I remember loading the back of my wife's car and getting everything perfectly situated, placed just right. And I remember sliding that last sort of fold-away chair right into the top left corner. And I, like in my head, I was remembering my childhood when the Tetris game is like, meow, 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 and like everything deletes and you like win the game because you just fit the perfect piece in there. Nobody played Tetris on Game Boy. Okay, that was just for me. That was just for me. And I was like, man, I got it all to fit. Yes. And then my wife comes walking out the front door with the cooler and the water. And I was like, no. Where has that been this whole time? That's, that's the most important part of the whole trip. We can't go without food. I was like, man, I, either something's going to have to stay home. Got to take some things out. I'm going to have to rearrange this entire situation in order to fit the most important thing in. Friends, if you're honest, if I'm honest, my mind is so full of distraction in this season. There's a million things coming at me from a million different directions. A steady stream of news and social media and entertainment and content. Stuff that we have to do as a family, stuff that we have to do with our family. Work things, church things, life things. And oftentimes, Jesus may be knocking on the door. He may be saying, I wanna show you how I'm working in your life. I, I want you to recognize what I'm doing in your life. But man, the trunk is full. There's just no space. There's no room in the inn. And so my challenge to you would be, what do you need to rearrange? What do you need to remove? What needs to stay home? So that you can bring the most essential thing with you. So that you can add the most essential thing. Reminded me of a story in Matthew 8 about a Roman centurion. Starting in verse 5, here's what it says. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. No, you can't, you can't come to my home. No, don't, don't come to my home, Jesus. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. 
For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. He was amazed. And he said to those who followed him, the disciples and the others, truly I tell you, no one in all Israel have I found with such faith. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Isn't this amazing? Joseph's parents, Joseph's friends and family members. When Joseph showed up with Mary and the baby Jesus who was yet to be born, when he showed up, they said, no, don't come in my home. Don't step foot under my roof. I don't want to be associated with the shame and the scandal of your life and that child. Don't want anything to do with it. Do not come under my roof. The Roman centurion said the same thing, but he said it completely different. He didn't say, don't come into my house because I don't want to be associated with the shame of who you are, Jesus, and the scandal of who you are and who you claim to be. No, the Roman centurion rearranged his whole life. He had a lot going on. He was in charge of people. He told people to go and they went. He told people to go there and they went. He had people under his command. His life, I'm sure, was busy, but he dropped everything rearranged all of it and went to search for Jesus because one of the servants in his household was sick. He went town to town asking, do you know where Jesus is? Do you know where Jesus is? Is he in Galilee? Is he headed towards Jerusalem? Where can I find him? And he finally found him. He took time. He sought him out. He searched for him. And he found him and he, he shows up and he says, Jesus, I'm so glad I found you. One of my servants is so sick, he's suffering terribly. I need you to heal him. And Jesus is like, show me where he is. I'll go with you right now to your home. I'll go into that room of your home and I'll heal him. And he says, no, I know who you are. I believe that you are more than a man. I'm not even worthy to have you come under the roof of my house. Don't come in my home because I'm not worthy. Not because you're not worthy, not because I'm ashamed of you, because I, I'm not worthy and I'm ashamed of the things I've done. With humility, he approached Jesus, but he believed, he recognized who Jesus was. Therefore, he didn't reject or resist Jesus. His faith actually enabled Jesus to heal the man in his house. Jesus goes, I've never seen faith like this before. This is incredible. Sure, I won't go to your house, but wink, wink, I'm heading to your house right now in the spirit and your servant is healed. Isn't that amazing? Jesus doesn't even physically go to the house, but his presence goes there and heals the servant. This leads me to my third point. Friends, if we are able to recognize who Jesus is and what he's up to in our lives, then we will receive him. Even in the pain, even in the difficulty, even in the, the toughest parts of life, if we can recognize what he's up to, we will rearrange things, we will find him, and we will open the door and receive him when he knocks. Something else I read this week from the earliest Christians, the early church fathers, is they would, they would talk about the situations in life as the right hand and the left hand of God. 
They say, we, we all love to receive from the right hand of God. The right hand throughout scripture, it represents the hand of blessing, of success, of healing, of all the good things, of all the good gifts that God longs to give his children. It represents all the things that we hope God would do for us. It's easy to, to recognize and to receive from God when things are going great, but what they realized early on because they were facing persecution, they were, they were facing hardship and trial, some were being killed for their faith. What they had to learn to recognize early on was not just the right hand of God, but the left hand of God. The permissive actions of God where, just like Job, there were certain scenarios where God says, I'm going to allow you to go through a time of testing and trial. It's going to purify your faith. There will be seasons where this hurts, where it's painful. I'm not actively doing it to your life. It's a result of living in a broken world. But I want to make sure your faith, your love for me is real. I want to make sure that it's refined, though as by fire, so that when it really matters, when you're, when you're face to face with me on the doorstep of eternity, what you believe of me, how you recognize me, how you approach me is true. And no matter what you went through on this side of eternity, no matter what you faced in this life, you're going to step into healing and wholeness and everlasting joy. The left hand of God is the side of God. It's the circumstances of life that refine us. They, they grow us up. They cause us to become who God wants us to be. But sometimes they're harder to receive. Sometimes they're harder for us to recognize. And friends, I pray in this season of Advent, as you take inventory of your own life and you ask the question, Lord, what, what are you up to? What are you doing in my life right now? Based on the circumstances and the situations that I'm facing, I only have a limited view, but God, I trust you're up to something more. One of my favorite authors, G.K. Chesterton, and I'll, I'll close with this. I'll invite the band to come out with this. G.K. Chesterton wrote, when a person has found something which he prefers to life itself, he for the first time has begun to live. It's amazing reality, isn't it? Jesus said it a little bit different. He said, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who tries to hang on to his life tries to hold on to everything and hoard everything for their own sake, they will lose life. They won't actually find life. They won't find the healing, the eternal life, the joy, the peace, the purpose that I long to give. But the one who lays down their own life, the one who, who comes to me on their knees and says, Jesus, I, I am sick. I'm in need of a healer. I'm, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of a savior. Lord, I'm spiritually dead. I'm in need of your resurrection power. The one that comes to me and says, Lord, you're not even, I, I'm not even worthy to have you come into my home or into my, under my own roof. The one that approaches Jesus like that is the one on whom Jesus smiles and says, I'm coming anyways. You couldn't keep me away. I see your heart. And I know you may feel unworthy. I know you may feel like too much of a mess, but I'm okay with messes. I came for heaven's sakes. I came from heaven to a feeding trough. 
The two symbols of the Christian faith, think about this, the beginning and the end of Jesus's life, the two most obscure, unexpected, hardly recognizable things that anyone could ever write. There is no way a human could have made this up. God reveals himself on planet Earth as a child who was born in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. And then at the end of his life, he was killed as a criminal on a cross. A feeding trough and a cross, the two symbols of the Christian faith. And then an empty tomb. Friends, my prayer for us as we head into Advent, as we approach Christmas, is that you would look again. Linger a little bit longer on what Jesus has done for you. Take a moment to pause, to make space, to rearrange some things in your own life. Don't miss what God is up to. Don't miss what he's doing, even through the painful realities that you face. He's writing a bigger story. He's writing a better story. And he's not finished yet. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.